Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Following the reading, I invite, you, I invite to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. The time came for Elizabeth to have her baby. She gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very kind to her. They shared her joy. On the eighth day, the child, they came to have the child circumcised. They were going to name him Zechariah, like his, son, like his father. But, the, but his mother spoke up. No, she said, he must be called John. They said to her, no one among your relatives has that name. Then they motioned to his father. They wanted to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for something to write on. Then he wrote, his name is John. Everyone was amazed. Right away, Zechariah could speak again. Right away, he praised God. All his neighbors were filled with fear and wonder. Throughout Judea's hill country, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it. And because the Lord was with John, they asked, what is this child going to be? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church, and Merry Christmas. My name is Allie. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. It's our custom before we get started with our sermon to take a moment to pause, to pray, to settle our minds from the morning, um, to set aside any distractions, and to invite God to uh, use this time to speak to our hearts. So I invite you to enter into a moment of silence with me. God, we thank you for this time to gather together to look at your word um, and to hear from you. God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning and that our time together would be glorifying to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the other day I came across some parenting advice for families who do the elf on the shelf during December. If that's not a tradition that you're familiar with, the elf on the shelf is a tiny elf that in some families reports back to Santa to help him compile his naughty or nice list. These elves also tend to get into fun mischief, like fishing for goldfish in the bathroom sink, only to be caught by their kids in the morning. Well, this parent warned other parents when she saw her child's tablet in an unusual spot. It wasn't plugged in in its regular overnight charging spot. No, it was sneakily placed under the Christmas tree, propped up and recording. Why? To catch that mischievous elf, of course. 
It took me right back to my childhood when my brother and I would create a Santa trap by placing all of our jingle bell ornaments on the bottom branches of our Christmas tree. That way, when Santa, or as our suspicions changed, our parents, placed the presents under the tree, we would hear the bells and catch them in the act. It never worked. There's something about the mix of traditions, anticipation, and sugar highs that takes a child's curiosity to the max around Christmas. We weren't trying to ruin the magic or be difficult. We just had to know. Was it Santa? Was it really just our parents? Were there elves or reindeer involved? And did he like my cookies? So many questions that needed answers. Of course, even without the holiday magic, kids are already naturally curious. It's often said that we are all born as little scientists. We enter this big, fascinating world where everything is new, and like scientists, we ask questions and perform experiments to learn about ourselves and our surroundings. One of the joys of motherhood for me so far has been watching my baby discover her hands. There's this point when babies realize that their hands exist, and they just hold them in front of their face and look at them absolutely mesmerized. And then, then they figure out that they can control them. And they just gaze at their hands in wonder, opening and closing their fists. Incredible. So much power, so much possibility. When we're little, everything is something to discover. There are so many questions to ask, experiments to do, and things to learn. The curiosity is endless. As we age, though, the world becomes a little less shiny, a little less novel. We stop being awestruck by the simple things. Most of us aren't bewildered by our own fingers anymore. We stop setting up surveillance cameras for mischievous elves. And we stop asking why until our family is exasperated. Dr. Diane Hamilton, author of Cracking the Curiosity Code, identifies four reasons why we can become less curious over time. The first is fear. At some point in our lives, we learn what the proverb, curiosity killed the cat, is talking about. We become afraid of what we might discover and how it might change our outlook or beliefs. We become afraid of acknowledging that there is even an unknown out there. So the first reason is fear. The second reason is assumptions. We are always learning new things. And sometimes we just assume that we already know the answer or that we already know the best way to do something. Or at least we know a way to do it so we don't have to spend energy on trying another way. Our assumptions can keep us from the bother of asking questions. So we have fear, assumptions, and then we have technology. Now, this one is dependent on how you use your technology. For instance, getting an instant answer to where you recognize that one actor from actually frees up your brain to do a lot more wondering. But when we read conclusions to things that aren't so simple quickly, we cheat our brains out of the exercise of curiosity and pondering. Doing that work is actually good for us and can make us more curious in the long run. 
So we have fear, assumptions, and technology. And the last reason is our environment. Some of us work jobs where curiosity is not encouraged. We're asking why is a waste of time. And you should just do the task in front of you the way it's always been done. Or maybe some of us were raised with our curious, but whys? Being met with simple, because I said so. Having our curiosity constantly shut down by others can make us less curious overall. So we have fear, assumptions, technology, and our environment. You can see in all these reasons that throughout our life, as we grow and learn, we develop a log of experiences that can dim the switch on our curiosity. And when we might have a curious inkling, we think to ourselves, nah, too scary. Why bother? Not allowed to. But curiosity is good for us. It drives us to learn and to grow. It can make us more empathetic and deepen our relationships. And when we're curious, not just about the world around us, but also the God who created it. When we're curious about who God is and what God is doing and who God is inviting us to be, curiosity can lead us into a deeper relationship with Christ. This morning, we're continuing our Advent Sermon series, The Gift of Wonder, Childlike Practices that Connect Us with Christ. Each week, we're taking a look at a characteristic we often associate with children, but that God intended for everyone of all ages. Last week, Pastor Bryn preached about play. And this morning, you guessed it, our childlike practice is curiosity. I invite you to turn with me to the passage that Sophie read for us. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 66. In our passage, we're hearing about the birth of John the Baptist. And while this is the birth narrative of John, it's not quite where his story starts. Earlier in chapter 1, we read that there is a faithful priest named Zechariah. He and his wife Elizabeth are getting up there in age, and they have not been able to have a child. The angel Gabriel then appears to Zechariah, telling him that he will have a son. And this son has a specific and important role in, to play in God's plan for redemption. This son has been set apart to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. His job is to teach people to repent, to, to return to doing what is right in the eyes of God, so that they are ready to meet Jesus. And the angel tells Zechariah that when the baby boy is born, his name is supposed to be John. Now, I'm sure we can all understand that an encounter with an angel would be shocking, unsettling. After all, they always lead with, don't be afraid. But Zechariah doesn't respond in the best way. Instead of asking curiously how his son will be born, much like Mary does when she hears from the angel that she will bear the Son of God, Zechariah asks, how do I know you're telling the truth? How do I know you're not lying to me? I'm super old, so is my wife. We've been disappointed and longing for so long, it seems impossible. Well, Gabriel did not appreciate that question. 
He says, I'm Gabriel, literally an angel. I serve the Lord. You might have heard of him. Are you really going to doubt what I say? And so for not believing Gabriel, Zechariah is unable to speak until the birth of his son. Zechariah went nine months without being able to talk, only communicating through gestures and written signs. So here we are, nine months of silence later, and John has finally been born. Because of Zechariah's silence and the fact that Elizabeth was elderly, the town knew that God had done something. They celebrated with Elizabeth that God would be so kind to her to give her a child. At the time, society dictated that a woman's worth was in her ability to bear children, and not just any children, but specifically sons who could carry on the family line. To not be able to bear children was not only a disappointment, but a source of shame in that world. Elizabeth declares when she becomes pregnant in verse 25, God has taken away my shame among the people. This is incredible news, and the people celebrate with Elizabeth and Zechariah. It was customary at that time that a baby boy would be officially named on the day of their circumcision when they were eight days old. Without even asking, those performing the ceremony start to name the little boy after his father, Zechariah. That was tradition. That was what was expected. You use a family name. And because Zechariah couldn't speak to offer up a different family name, they just assumed that they would use his. Can you imagine feeling so certain about a tradition that you're just like, yeah, let me name somebody else's baby. I know what's supposed to happen here. Let me just draft up that paperwork for you real quick. What an assumption. But Elizabeth speaks up. They were given instructions from God to name this baby John, which means God is gracious. Even after Elizabeth speaks up, the crowd holds their assumptions and clings to tradition and says, but you don't have any relatives with that name. There was no curiosity, no, hmm, I wonder why Elizabeth wants to deviate from tradition, or where is the name John from? Could it have another meaning that we don't know? What does the name John signify? No. The crowd thought, surely this child is meant to have another name. Okay, Dad, what do you want to name the child? Something with a strong history? Are you sure you don't just want to stick with Zechariah like we thought? But Zechariah wasn't able to speak. He hadn't made a noise in nine months. So he grabs some paper and a pen, and he starts to write something. And everyone's waiting in anticipation, hearing his pen scratch the paper. And after a moment, he turns the paper around to show what he's written. His name is John. Finally, after nine months of silence, Zechariah can speak again, and he praises God. To which the crowd goes, whoa. They're amazed. They are surprised. They are filled with fear and wonder. See, even though God was evidently doing something amazing through Elizabeth's pregnancy, they weren't being very curious. 
They were caught up with their assumptions and traditions, happy and excited that God was showing kindness to this barren old woman. But it still seemed all very commonplace to them. They weren't wondering what God was up to. They weren't trying to understand more or explore deeper. They weren't asking why. They were ready to name this baby Zechariah and say, oh, that is so nice that they finally have a son. See ya. But God at work catches their attention. Zechariah finally speaks again, and God at work piques their curiosity. They go off talking together in the community. Did you hear what happened at Zechariah's boy's circumcision? Clearly, God is doing something here. What is God up to? What will John become? What does God have in store for John? Or for us, through John? What is happening? So many questions sparked from noticing God at work. And the curiosity and the wonder, they spread through word of mouth, through the neighborhoods and the villages all along the Judean hillside. I love passages like these, ones that mention the awe and the wonder in the crowds and villages, because it ignites my own curiosity, and I can't help but wonder about their wondering. Like, I wonder if there was a kid that was watching all of this unfold, growing up and hearing stories about their neighbor John, hearing his grown-ups reminisce and continue to question it. I wonder if maybe that kid would be intrigued enough to remember, curious enough years later to seek out what John had to say when he began his ministry. I wonder if the curiosity that spread through the village would be remembered and give people a reason to carefully consider what John had to say. I wonder if the people who were standing there listening to John as he literally pointed to Jesus and said, he is the Savior, remembered the situation of his birth and started putting the pieces of unusual stories together. I wonder if they wondered enough to wonder themselves straight to Jesus. As we read the detailed and orderly account found in the Gospel of Luke, it certainly seems possible. God was at work in extraordinary ways, capturing people's attention and piquing curiosity. If the communities in that region were curious enough, if they pondered the workings of God together, it would all point to Jesus. In the same way, our own curiosity can lead us to Jesus. Our own curiosity can lead us further into relationship with Jesus. Our own curiosity can give us a greater understanding of who Jesus is and what he is inviting us into. And just like in our passage, I think the first step to practicing curiosity is to begin with noticing God at work. It was seeing God at work through Elizabeth's faithful desire to name the baby John and through Zechariah's silent agreement and sudden ability to speak again that shook the crowd out of their assumptions that this baby was simply a kindness of God. It was noticing God at work and then spurred, that spurred further questions of curiosity. Only after noticing God at work did they ask, what will this child become? God is doing something. What is it? 
Noticing is important. But noticing God takes practice. It's not every day that we see a man whose mouth was shut for nine months because he questioned the trustworthiness of an angel regain his ability to talk, you know? We're looking for things that are a little bit more subtle. The cool thing is that the more we practice looking for God, the more we understand who God is and how God works, the easier it is to notice God's presence with us and God's work among us. Hopefully on your way in, you received a copy of Sarah Cowan Johnson's God Hunt instructions. Sarah is a ministry coach and has written a book on family discipleship. We love working with Sarah and using her resources. On the page, you'll find instructions for doing a spiritual practice of a God hunt with a mixed age audience. For those of you who don't regularly hang with children, this practice is still really helpful. It is child-friendly, but not childish. These instructions are super simple. As part of an existing routine, sit around with family or with friends and hunt for God in your day. During our weekly staff meetings, we do a high and a low and how we have seen God at work to start our meeting. But you could be, do it with friends or family around the dinner table or with your life group to open your discussion or before you pray. What I find particularly helpful about Sarah's sheet is that she offers different ways we can be challenging ourselves and our kids to recognize God. For the littlest kids, for example, they can recognize God through creation. I remember doing this exercise with kids years ago as part of a vacation Bible school, and every day we saw God through squirrels. And you know what? They're right. Yes, kids, God did create that squirrel. How amazing. With each age range, there's a new challenge. How did you see God's character in your day? Did you experience God's compassion, grace, or mercy? How did you experience God's presence? If you had a sad or a challenging day, where was God? Some days, even for the most seasoned God hunters, it's hard to notice God. That's okay. It is, after all, called a hunt. The name implies that it will take effort at least sometimes. But we also don't hunt alone. When we are stuck, when we have had a day or a month or a year where we just cannot see where God has been, we have brothers and sisters in Christ to help us look. We can and we should be helping each other identify and verify where we are noticing God. We do faith in community because we all bring different perspectives and gifts to help us understand God better. If I cannot see where God is, perhaps from your perspectives, you can see God clearly. Or maybe your curiosity, your questions, your searching will help me find God. And sometimes, we need someone to tell us that what we thought was God was not God. We need people who are aware and familiar with God's character to tell us, yeah, that sounds like God's at work. Or, no. Actually, that doesn't sound too consistent with who I know God to be. 
Once we are noticing God and confident that we're really seeing God at work in our lives, we can and we should start to get curious. You'll notice on the God Hunt instructions that Sarah's challenge to adults is to start noticing patterns. The challenge is to start getting curious about noticing God. I see God here and here and here. I wonder what God is doing there. Are they connected? Why are these patterns happening? What is God inviting me to learn? What does God want to show me? Earlier this year, as I was returning to work after having my daughter, like many other new moms, I started having some doubts about my ability to keep up with work and motherhood. My brain was foggy. I was exhausted from round-the-clock feedings. I didn't quite feel like myself. And it felt hard to leave my daughter, even for super short meetings. I kept thinking, I don't know if I can do this. What if I can't do this? But each week at staff meeting, I kept finding ways that God was working through kids crew or our youth ministry. Through reflections with trusted saints, I noticed God showing up in my life here and there. Each instance looked like God's goodness and kindness to me. A meal or a coffee delivered at just the right time. Finding true delight and joy through time with our Anchor Bay kids. Feeling God with me in hard conversations. Noticing God growing me as a pastor. Details that I had missed being caught and corrected by others. God showed up in lots of ways. And I could have looked at each of them individually and been encouraged and then just stopped. But I got a little curious. And I started wondering, what is God inviting me to do or learn? What might God be trying to teach me here? And when I started asking those questions, all the pieces came together. Instead of one-offs of God's kindness, I saw God reminding me that I don't do this alone and that I am invited to depend on God. When I was saying to myself, I don't think I can do this, God was saying, hey, you're right, but that's actually okay because I've got this. You were never supposed to do this on your own. God had something bigger for me to understand, something that I needed to know, and I very well could have missed it if I hadn't been curious. During Advent and Christmas time, we celebrate that God came through Jesus to be our Emmanuel, God with us. God came to dwell among us so that we could know God, so that we could have a real relationship with a God who loves us. Jesus was born so that God could be discovered, intimately known, and loved by us. So church, I encourage you to practice being curious. Work on noticing God in your days and keep asking questions. What might God be inviting you to learn in this season? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in this season we are reminded that you sent your son to be with us so that we could know you 
and love you, to be led by you. God, we ask that you would continue to grab our attention through the ways that you're working, that you would spur us on to encourage one another um, with questions about how you are working and why. Lord, may our curiosity draw us deeper into loving relationship with you. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.